Welcome to the New Vision Church podcast. New Vision Church is a diverse, Bible-teaching, Jesus-centered church in San Diego, California, and exists to transform people and their communities by replicating followers of the biblical Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's this week's sermon. For a different reason, but we're here to bring light to the people's lives. What a better place to be the light in the dark is in the time of darkness. And so we as a church get to be that. And, uh, you know, so we want to be able to do October 31st. So sign up, see Sean in the back, see Sean at the Welcome Center, sign up so we can get your cars signed up, all those different things going there. Also, guys, you love eating food after church? Yeah. Come on now. Listen, listen. So we used to do this all the time. We used to have meals after church all the time. But in order to make that happen, we need you to maybe be interested in volunteering to be cooks or help at least once a month. If you could do it once a month and we get a bunch of teams, then we'll be able to eat meals after church every Sunday together. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't jumped in somewhere, uh, come and be where we're trying to do that in this campus, the next campus over there, that we can get back to having community again and back to breaking bread again after service. So if Greg's in the back, he's right there. He'll be at the Welcome Center. Go see him after church and get signed up. If you haven't got plugged in, what a greater place to pride a uh, little sweet bread, a little panduce, a little carne asada, a little lumpia, a little whatever. Where's the verse group here? A little Samoan food. I know we got a lot of flavors in this church. We've eaten them all, right? So we got we to we gotta do it well, right? Amen, amen. Hey, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. We've been going through the, the Gospel of John this morning. We're finishing off chapter 11. We've been in that chapter for a bit, looking at the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. We're going to be in verses here, 45 to 57 this morning, chapter 11. My title is called A Response to a Messianic Prophet. A response to a Messianic Prophet this morning. You know, I, I'm not much of a cook, but the other day I was helping my wife prepare, uh, prepare dinner by cutting some onions, right? And, and you, know, you know the risk of cutting onions, right? You, you, you start to cry, right? Uh, so I, I did a little research on why that happens. And it says this here, when you cut into an onion, you rupture its cells, releasing enzymes that produce a gas called propenthenol sulfoside. Once the gas reaches your eyes, it reacts with tears produced by a mild sulfuric acid and thus hurts. The brain then signals the eye's tear glands to produce more liquid to, to flush the stuff out. And the more you chop, the more irritating gas you produce and the more tears you shed. So, and we find that the highest concentration of the enzyme is at the bottom of the onion. So, so as you cut deeper in, it produces more of these, these sulfur, this acid in your life. And it causes an irritation. And so the deeper you go, more of the irritation you can get. Let me tell you some confrontation uh, is unpleasant. And though oftentimes it's very necessary in life, like cutting into an onion, we rupture cells when we speak the hard truths to somebody else's life. And the deeper we cut, the stronger the reaction. And all the negative emotions and the baggage of past hurts come flowing out like a toxic gas. In fact, that's what you find in this story about Lazarus. Jesus is speaking the truth about being the resurrection and the life. Lazarus is raised from the dead. His works and words are cutting deep into the souls of the religious leaders and those that are watching, irritating to the point they want to kill him. Sometimes irritation is good. 
because it requires a response. In the, in the story of Lazarus, see, the gospel will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what the gospel will do. One, some came to believe and some begin to worry. We're going to see a reaction of two reactions in a moment, but that's what the gospel is. That's what this prophet came to do. He was beginning to irritate some people with who he was and the things that he began to do. And as we journey through the gospel, we see things are heating up, right? Lazarus' resurrection has sparked fire into the religious leaders. Their view of Jesus has grown from hate to plotting his death. As we begin to close chapter 11, we begin to close some of his public ministry. We've seen his incarnation. We see his introduction. Now we're seeing his irritation of the Jews. And as we close chapter 11, moving into chapter 12, we're going into his last week of his life, leading to his death and his resurrection. That's where we're headed. So we go from chapter 12 on starting next week. It's really his last week. But we've been journeying through his public ministry for the last 11 chapters. We've been introduced to him. We saw the word became flesh. We saw the intensity of the persecution rising. We see all that. Let's read this morning, chapter 11, starting at verse 45. Pray. Not yet. We will. We will pray. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for reminding me, Christina, but we will pray. 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered and counseled and said, What shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nations. And one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor are you to consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did. Not to say on his own authority, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations. And not that for the nations only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near wilderness to a, to a city called Ephraim. And there remained with his disciples and the Passover of the Jews were, was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Let's pray. Father heaven, we come um, this morning with open hearts and open minds to your word. Father, we want to see the planted word in our hearts and in our souls that we would learn of you. Father, we know that your word is truth. Father, we know that your word sanctifies us. It, it teaches us. It instructs us. It corrects us. It rebukes us. It gives us direction. And so as we study, just been studying your life, we've been studying the life of Jesus this morning. Lord, we pray that we would learn this morning, uh, how, what's the correct response to this messianic prophet that we worship this morning? Because not everybody believed. But we pray this morning that you give us a heart to believe. And even in our unbelief, help us. And we pray this morning a moving of your spirit as you have been moving. Father, as we've entered into worship, as we're entered into our prayer time, now we continue our worship as we enter into your word and then into communion. We pray this morning that you would guide and lead our time together. 
In Jesus' name, I pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. We're gonna look at a couple things this morning. Here's the first thing. That there's two responses to the Messianic prophet, right? We know that my wife had gotten these, this pearl wristband on our trip. And we know that we love the look of pearls. They're a beautiful thing, but a pearl, a pearl is a byproduct of irritation, right? That's where it comes. It's in a, it's in a shell, and, and, and the things that happen in the shell irritate this rock that produces a pearl. So beauty comes out of, out of irritation. But the beauty of the pearl will definitely outlast the creature that, the creature that produced it. The words and works of Jesus irritated the religious leaders. But the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection produced two responses, one of belief and one of worry. Jesus will irritate your life in order to get a response. Maybe the things that you're going through right now is only a way by God to irritate you, to rethink where you are in your, your relationship with him. Jesus' resurrection was a way to produce a response. And we're going to see two responses this morning. The first one here is that many believed. We see that in verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. Who were these Jews? Now, we know that there was the Jews in the story that had come to Mary and Martha's house and were the mourners. We know that they had been, been at a memorial service. They know they had been at a burial service. We know that when, when uh, Mary and Martha, specifically when Mary came out, these mourners, the Jews came out to, on the, outside the city of, 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 of Bethany and they, they saw a kind of conversation with Jesus and Jesus wept and mourned with them. These were the Jews. They, were, they may have been, they weren't believers at that time. And there might even been enemies of Jesus coming out there. Because we know during this season, during this time, remember they, that the religious, uh, that the disciples didn't want to go to Jesus to Bethany because the Jews wanted to kill him. And so we know this community has surrounded Mary and Martha in her loss, but this resurrection produced a belief in some. They saw the signs, they saw the miracle, they saw the work of God, and some of them believed in Jesus. These were the mourners, right? Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says that a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. These were the ones who were at the graveside of Jesus when they saw his resurrection. Psalm 126, 5 reminds us that those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. But they believed him. What does that mean that they believed him? I think the word here they came to a knowledge of the truth of who he was. They, they were persuaded of, about his identity. They, they committed their trust to him. I think that's the relationship that God is calling us to. That's the relationship that he wants with us this morning. The key to faith is trust. Here's the question. Do you trust Jesus? But before you answer it, think about what you're saying. Do you trust Jesus? Jesus? That's the million dollar question. Meaning, do you trust Jesus in every area of your life? With your family, with your marriages, with your finances, with your friends, with your work, with your worship, with your service, you put whatever, with your job, in your difficulties, 
in your suffering, in your pain, in your loss? Do you trust Jesus? Because faith says that we put our full weight and trust into Jesus. And when they saw the resurrection of Lazarus, that was for some their aha moment of the spirits. They experienced the power of Jesus as they watched the things that Jesus had did. You're going to find later that these same Jews who believed and experienced the power, we find them in chapter 12 testifying of Jesus. Testifying of Jesus. You know what believers do? They testify about who Jesus is. They're not closet Christians. All right? They're not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of salvation. They're, they're proclaimers of the gospel. They're telling people about who Jesus is and they share with others. They become missional followers. Think about the Samaritan woman as soon as she had an encounter and, and came to the revelation of who Jesus was. She shot to the city and told people about the, this messianic prophets. Some of you, are, you go and you hear about Jesus, and you but cannot hold about telling other people about who Jesus is. But it's sad to say, many in the church have never, ever shared their faith. They've never told people about Jesus. But you're here because somebody told you about Jesus. I'm here because somebody talked to me about Jesus. And so here they were testifying about who Jesus was. And, and you know what? To testify, it takes courage. It takes boldness. But, but let me tell you something. God has already prepared a way for you to share. You just got to trust in the leading. God's already made a way. He's prepared the ground. He's prepared the heart. And if God is leading you to share with something, you have that inkling in you, and you're saying, man, I'm supposed to say something, heed the work of the Spirit in your life because God's already prepared the way. He has. And so we see many of those who believed, many of those who saw believed. But here's the question, another question. But do you have to see to believe? Remember, Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. He came to the disciples, but the only one not present was Thomas. Thomas, we don't know where he was. Some maybe said he was depressed, lost, hurt, because the very one he trusted died. And so when Jesus came into a room, the disciples were there, and he revealed himself to them. And guess what? They, they were moved, but Thomas was there. And then when they came to tell Thomas that we've seen the resurrected Jesus, Thomas did not believe them. He says, I won't believe until I could touch his wounds. I could touch his hands. I could touch his scars. And eight, day, eight days later, while Thomas and the team, the people, the disciples were gathered, Jesus appeared again. Be careful what you ask for. And Jesus came in to Thomas and puts his hands on and said, Thomas, touch my wounds, see my scars. See my holes. I believe there were actually holes that he put his handprints in, into his wrists. And, and we see here, Thomas falling to his knees said, because Jesus said, because you see me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. We put our faith in the resurrected one We've seen the miracles in the lives of people in this room. We've seen the miracles that have answered. We've seen those very things, but what hinders our belief? But you can see miracles and still not believe. 
You can see transformation and still not believe. Because that's exactly what happened with the Jews, some of the Jews that were here that saw the resurrection of Jesus. And so because they didn't believe, they worried. They had a worryful heart. Look at 46 and 48. It says, but some of them went away from the Pharisees and told the things Jesus did. They were there at the event of the resurrection, but they went away. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. God was busy. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh my gosh, everybody just might believe in this Jesus. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. When they saw the resurrection of Lazarus, some of these Jews, they didn't believe. And they ran to the Pharisees. It's funny, they ran to the Pharisees only to confirm the, the work and the signs that Jesus had already done. They couldn't deny it, right? They saw it with their own eyes and they went to go snitch on Jesus. The ones who were not persuaded, who didn't believe in him, they went snitched on him, right? Why can people see the miracles of God and still not believe? Because the Bible says that that the God of this world has blinded the mind of men that they cannot see the truth of the gospel. That there is an enemy who blinds, who covers your understanding. Notice it to say, the blind his eyes, but blind his mind. The understanding, the intellect there. There's an enemy that wants to confuse. There's an enemy that will rob you, right? See, the words and the works of Jesus didn't fall on good soil here. The parable of the sower. You can go back and research that. Fell on bad soil in the raven. The enemy came and just snatched it right up. Some of you might be here this morning. Some of you might be watching online. Some of you might be here and you're hearing the word and it's like water off a duck's back. You haven't received it yet. Maybe you come for tradition. Maybe you come because maybe you think the church is going to make your life better. Church doesn't make your life better. Jesus makes your life better. The church is a place that we can grow together and be edified and build up to know and love Jesus and love one another. To love our neighbor as we're going to do in the coming weeks. But I find it interesting. They went to go snitch on Jesus like they were going to control the work of Jesus. Like they were going to stop the work of Jesus. Like if, if you read Psalm 2, it says the nations plan together to come against God. You, you know what? I love this passage in Psalm 2. Because it says, God laughed from the heavens. <laughs> like, I'm like, dude, like, I just love that because it's like, really? You're going to come against me and you're going to stop my work, you, my little created beings, <laughs> right? And I love the description of God. He laughs. We have a laughing God, a humorous God. Like, you're snitching to your little religious friends about my work like you're going to control and stop my movement. Like, this world cannot stop God's movements. As hard as they may try, laws that may pass, church and state, I could care less about church and state. The kingdom of God is always moving. The gospel is always moving. And I, it doesn't matter what happens out here because God is always moving. How foolish these men were. But God will use the testimony a men, regardless of their motives and sharing. We see that here, right? See, this report, they coming and snitching and ratting Jesus out, was meant for evil. 
right? Whatever. And there's people that will use the gospel for their own selfish gain. There are people, just watch people on TV. There, there, there are people that are not feeding the flock, they're fleecing the flock. They're doing things to take advantage of people and their vulnerability. Just only turn on the tube and you see a lot of them. Be careful. That's why you need to know the word. Philippians says this, 1, 15 through 18, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some from goodwill. Two types of people there, right? The former preached Christ with selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. Paul was imprisoned as he writes this letter. But the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, what then are only that in every way, whether pretense, wrong motives, or in the truth, Christ is preached, and this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. And so when Caiaphas comes, this high priest is going to share something right now that is true, that he doesn't even know it's true. He's going to give a prophetic word here. Whether wrong, right motives or wrong motives, Jesus' miracle is being shared. His work is being shared. They're bringing it to attention. He might have bad PR in some sense because this guy's snitching on the religion. He's getting, Jesus is getting bad PR, but he's going to take bad PR and make it for the good. That's what Jesus does. And so, in response to the, this miracle, this, this religious council gathers, we call them the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they come to talk about this miracle. They're having conversation about what's going on. They came together to discuss it. Jesus had been performing many miracles. The man in the, in the pool of Bethsaida on the pallet in John 5, the, uh, that lame man, the blind man in John 9, now Lazarus' miracle in the resurrection of the dead, right? They're not denying and disputing that Jesus had done these miracles. But the Jews were in a dilemma here. They felt like they were in a dilemma. That's the question. What are we going to do with this Jesus? What are we going to do with him? And see, instead of seeing Lazarus' resurrection, they worried that many might believe in him. Instead of cheering him on, yeah, Lazarus resurrected, let's celebrate. They're like, whoa, how is this going to affect us? And then they, they worry that the Roman government would come down on them and take away their power and their prestige, right? Oh, he's going to start this, Jesus is going to start this revolution and, and then he's going to be this political movement and then the Romans are going to come down and we're going to lose our position as priests and as, as scribes and Pharisees, influence, right? They were thieves, man. They were using God's house as a den of thieves. Caiaphas was uh, the, the son-in-law of Annas, the high priest, who was gaining money off the, 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 what was going on in the marketplace in the temple. So they were pocketing money. They, had, they were embezzling God. They were doing all this selfish thing to say, if, if they're going to start this great movement and they're going to come, and the Jews really believed that the Messiah was going to bring this political movement overrun the Roman government and, and make uh, heaven on earth, Jesus was far from that. Remember when he did great miracles and he's by the Sea of Galilee and they're going, oh, look at, man, he gave us food. What do we have? A great food program. He healed the sick. What a great uh, insurance plan. Let's make him king. And what did Jesus say? He, he gathered up his disciples and he said, get in the boat. Let's get the heck out of here because I'm not the king of this world. And you're not citizens of this world. You are citizens of heaven. And I have another kingdom. And this world is not what I'm trying to rule over. In fact, this world is going to fade away. And there's a new heaven and a, and a new earth. And so they were thinking here on the physical sense, right? They even mentioned the, this, this, he called the, the this, he used the word our place. It says this, they're going to take over and our place. That was a reference to the, to the temple, trying to take ownership of the temple. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. 
This isn't Pete's church. This is God's church. I just happen to be the shepherd here, but Jesus is the chief shepherd here. That's who we worship. That's who we serve. And they're like, oh, we're going to connect to control our temple, our house. Guys, we're here to serve people. We're here to honor God. This place is a house of prayer. That's what it is, a house of preaching. It's a house of service. This is our Antioch. This is the place we launch ministries out of. And we go out to care for others and love others. God has given us the ministry of stewarding, and we're called to steward the gospel. We're called to steward life and the resources given to us for the ministry of the gospels. But they weren't concerned about Jesus being in his rightful place. They're more concerned about losing their place, losing their influence, losing their power, losing their prestige over people. They're more, they were more concerned about their own welfare than the welfare of the people. They were false prophets, false religious leaders. If anybody hated, if Jesus hated anybody in the scriptures, it was the religious leaders. You brood of vipers, he called them. You snakes. He didn't say that about the world. He said about the religious institution. Boom. <laughs> you know, he, that, that he came after that. So the, here's a, another thing. Another question then. What's the obstacle? What's the obstacle we face for putting our faith in Jesus? The fear that it might cost you something? What will others think about you? I ain't making this an easy gospel. This ain't no, this, the stuff we study and we follow is no Barney gospel. I love you. You love me. We're just one happy family. I, I ain't a purple dinosaur up here. All right? All right? The gospel is messy. The gospel's lives are messy. I love that about our church. We have messy lives that God is working through messy people. Thank you, Jesus. Because that's the miracle working God that we serve. And it's hard. I'm not saying following Jesus is easy. I'm not saying it's a better rose. People were dying for this gospel. They're being persecuted for this. Jesus is going to get persecuted for this gospel and his message, right? But can I really, isn't I, can I really trust in the miracles and the words of God? Can I really do that? Because that might hinder us this morning. See, the problem here was that the religious leaders didn't even see themselves as evil perpetrators, right? Remember, they wanted to kill Jesus. They've been saying that the whole time. Their law says, do not kill. The Ten Commandments says, do not kill. That's their law. And they're violating the law and they become lawless. They are blind to their own spiritual bankruptcy and poverty. They didn't think they need, they thought they were righteous in God, but in reality, they were unrighteous. Violating their own laws. You know what the problem with us today is we fail to see ourselves as unrighteous. We think we're good people. God then says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick, Right? Thank you, Jesus. I was sick and I needed a savior. I need a physician. I need a healer. I need all of that because I was a sick puppy. And Jesus is our great physician. When we come to see our need for Jesus, a savior, he's the one we're going to love. He's the one we're going to serve. 
Mary Magdalene came and anointed Jesus' feet with oil. She was the one that had seven demons, worked the street. She's all, all that in a mess. And Jesus said, what? She just loved Jesus by anointing. When forgiven much, love much. Right? When we understand really what Jesus has done for us, and the Bible says, obey me because you love me, not because I mandated it. Love will bring obedience. The law will just bring bondage. I love you. I, I, I walk before you, Lord, because I love you. It's an expression of my love. There's, that's not heavy. That's not burdensome. That's freeing when we express our love that way, right? And so we see here these two responses. One, they put their faith with the other one. They worried like, we're, we're going to lose our position. We'll lose that. Listen, the Bible says, if you keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's a paradox. When you give your life away, God will give you a life. That's, that's what he offers you today, a new life. But here's the second thing. Caiaphas, looking at Caiaphas, the prophet high priest here, right? My, my daughter, Marissa, she is an ASL uh, interpreter, which is an American sign language. She works with the deaf. That's what she does for a living. She's got her degree in there. In fact, the letter R is a symbolized by the crossing of fingers. So this is the letter for an ASL for the, for the letter R. The but we know that the crossing of fingers has, has many meanings in our culture. One, when fingers are crossed behind your back, what does it mean? I hope they don't catch me fibbing. Right? Right? That's, that's I hope we catch you fibbing. Right? Another meaning is that something good will happen. Oh, crossing my fingers. Hope it works out. Right? Rush, Rush. Childro was the director of emergency services in Pennsylvania when the plane went down in the fields on 9-11. He was in charge of picking up the body parts of 100 through victims of U.S. Air Flight 427. And when he was asked what the experience was like, he said this, the memory that haunts me the most was finding a hand with the fingers crossed, a sign of good luck. The crosses, the crossing of the fingers goes all the way back to the first century. When Christianity was illegal and the Christians were being persecuted, the believers were able to communicate with each other through hand signals. The crossing of the fingers meaning they were people of the cross. Meaning they were redeemed by the cross and followers of Jesus. This symbol was not to cover up a lie or be hopeful thinking, but it was people who fully put their faith in Christ at all costs because of the work of the cross. Caiaphas is going to talk about the work of the cross, but he meant it for evil. God will turn it for good again. You know what? A prophet spoke, this high priest spoke, a prophetic word with no spiritual revelation. He was saying something. He didn't even know what he was saying. Look at this, 349 and 50. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to him, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Do you hear what he's saying? God will use whatever he wants to use or he'll choose whatever he wants to use to do his bidding. We see that in verse 49, right? He'll use unbelieving kings that started a migration from exile into Jerusalem. He used unbelieving kings to provide resources to build, rebuild Jerusalem. He even used a donkey to speak to a false prophet named Balaam. So don't underestimate how God will put the pieces and the pawns together. He'll use anyone and he's using Caiaphas, the high priest, for his purpose. 
this high priest for at this moment, who was during the same time that Pontius Pilate was governor at the time, had put him in just this right place. He was an unbelieving man who didn't believe in any resurrection because he was a Sadducee. And that's sad, you see. <laughs> see, Sadducees didn't believe in spiritual things. They were existentialists. They were philosophers. Sadducees were actually seen as very rude people. That's why he says, you know nothing at all. That's why he uses that phrase real quick. You know, you're not like me. You know nothing. You're ignorant. He would often speak down to them. But the scary thing about this high priest is that you can be involved in the service of God and not know God. Here's the scariest verse in the Bible if you're taking notes, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Because that's what he's doing. Cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. And when I will declare to them, I never knew you would depart me for who have you have practiced lawlessness. Look at the depth of that verse. Like they actually did all this work and still did not good work and still did not know God. The prayer in John 17, we'll get there, which is really the Lord's prayer says, this is eternal life that you might know me, the only true God, John 17, 3. That, he defines eternal life by knowing God. That's how we get in, not by the works we do. We do works out of our love, but we don't do works to earn God's favor. By faith, God gives us his favor. We are already accepted by faith. He already accepts us. We're not working toward his acceptance. We're working from his acceptance. And so Caiaphas makes this interesting statement to his fellow religious leaders, right? In verse 50. It's better that one man dies than many die, right? Maybe he's, try, he's trying to justify his next steps of actually wanting to kill Jesus, right? But his thoughts were very logical. But his ways were immoral, right? He said, consider this. I, I just want to bring this to your mind. I want you to think about this for a moment. It's expedient for us. In fact, the word expedient there is an accounting term that means profitable for us. That when Jesus dies, if Jesus dies, we will gain in the loss is what he's bringing out. He's making a case here, right? He's making a case for Jesus's death. He's trying to justify his actions. If he dies, we'll be able to keep what we have. We'll be able to keep our position, our prestige, our, our influence. But he didn't understand the significance of his prophetic words. He didn't understand what he was saying, right? Paul would later write this in Corinthians 2, 7, 8. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, talking about the crucifixion, which none of the rulers, Caiaphas was a ruler, but none of the rulers of this age knew, right? They didn't understand the resurrection. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That if they really knew the plan, they would say, we can't crucify him because his, the, the, there was significance in the cross of the crucifixion. So we're, we're reading this story, but here's the question. I, I had to ask myself this question. How did we get privy to this conversation, right? Because they were a council. They were together. They were hanging out together. They were collaborating together. The, the Sadducees, which is the mixture of the Pharisees, Sadducees, the priests come. How do I know that John's writing this, right? Nicodemus chapter three, right? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus at night. 
He was the religious leader who came by faith, right? The one, and he's the one later will defend Jesus when they're trying to take him to the cross. He will defend Jesus. I'm sure Nicodemus shared this conversation with John. I was at that meeting, man. It went, it went down like this, right? We had a spy in the camp. They had a mole in the camp. You're right. And this high priest wasn't even mindful of the words that he was sharing, speaking about Jesus' crucifixion. I'm mindful when people make statements that they don't even understand what they're saying. Here, here's one. God can only judge me. You ever heard that one before? I see it on tattoos. You know, they're all, God can only judge me. Yes, that's a true statement. But do you understand what you're saying? Right? Are you aware of what you're saying? I don't want God's judgment. I want God's mercy. Amen. When we ask for justice, be careful for what we ask for. Right? See, what's going on here, Caiaphas is thinking the natural, not in the spiritual. But yet he's bringing a prophetic word of what is to have. And so what does John in his writing do, right? This prophetic work is speaking about the future. Look at 51 and 52. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations and not for the nations only, but also he would gather together in one children of God who were scattered abroad. I love this about the apostle John this morning. The apostle John is going to exegete this philosophy or this or this this prophecy. He's going, to, he's going to do a little Bible study, right? He's going to spell it out for our, our benefit. He, 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 you know, I know that God is using Caiaphas for that moment to speak the truth, and it's not on his own authority. And I think what John is doing is he's saying, I'm giving credit to the office, but not to the man. I know he has authority as a high priest, but God is working through him. Whether God spoke through him to the spirit or the anointing was on for the moment, there's moments when Saul, God's anointing was on Saul for a moment, and the other time it wasn't. God was going to use this for his purpose. And he's prophesying how Jesus is going to die for the nations. He was going to die for the Jews and the Gentiles. The nations were here. There were nations in the Greek is the word ethos. We get the word ethnic or people. His work of the cross would gather the people together. Paul writes, this is the plan. At the right time, he would bring everything together under the authority of Christ, Ephesians 1.10. And there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Ephesians 4, 4, 5. One, unity. Christ is the common denominator. He unites us all. That's why we can be in this room this morning and be of different ethnicities and still be one, of one heart, one mind. See, the work of the cross is a unifier. It gives us common ground because we're one body, one family. There is no classism, no racism, no dividing wall. We are all one in Christ. Come on, come on. And John 10, 16 says, And the other sheep I, which are not of this fold, them also I bring, that they might hear my voice, and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Jews and Gentile. That was the picture of the church today, representing every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the kingdom of God. And lastly, as we close with my last thought here, we have to look at Jesus, the persecuted prophet, 53 to 57, right? I'm a football guy. I love football. I know I'm a Charger fan. I know you got some hater, hater, Raider haters here. Okay. 
But listen, listen. Sean Merriman was one of the top linebackers for the Chargers, a.k.a. what is it? Lights out, right? Lights out. He was a linebacker of the San Diego Chargers in the day, and he was known for his aggressive play, and he hit to knock the lights out of the opposing offenses. In chapter 11, it appears that Jesus' lights have been put out, that he's getting hit by the religious leaders, but what appears to be lights out is part of God's predetermined plan to knock the lights out of the enemy. In fact, Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Let me tell you something. You might feel like your lights have been knocked out today. Your wind has been knocked out. You feel like maybe you've been sucker punched. But the bell is not over yet. It hasn't rang yet. God is not done. He's not done with your story. He's not done with what he's doing you. He's not done yet. It may look dark, but light is coming. Right? It, it may, may not look good, but it's coming. Be mindful of that, right? And so we see in 53 and 54 that there was a hit put on Jesus, right? Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near wilderness, a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples, right? He just said, mark that statement. Mark, mark these verses here, right? This, the conclusion of the accounts of these Sanhedrin, these religious leaders that came to gay, was to put Jesus to death. That's the conclusion they came, right? They unified themselves. They gathered themselves under one purpose, was to see Christ crucified. That was their mission. And there was an evil spirit of death has budded by the religious leaders. They took up counsel, it says in verse 47. They discussed a proposal for how they would put him to death. They, there was wickedness practice. There was iniquity practice. In fact, the word iniquity in the scriptures means premeditated murder. These guys, these leaders could be charged with first-degree murder because they voted to kill him. Listen, either you're going to draw close to God or you're going to draw away from God. But James 1, 14 and 15 says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entices us and drags us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin allowed to grow, it gives birth to death they were growing deeper, deeper away from God and we're going to take out a man. And what does it say? That Jesus retreated with his disciples for a moment to the wilderness to a small city called Ephraim. He took a step back. We see that in verse 40, 54. When the pressured by the enemy, Jesus retreated to a quiet place with his disciples. I think that's important. Again, he did that when he went to the Jordan after 10. Then he went to Bethany. This work hand, the religious leader come, then he's retreating again. But it was all for a purpose. I hope you see the pattern here. He went to Jordan, resurrects Lazarus. Went to Ephraim, be re-resurrected. I hope you see the passages, how it's correlating. Because he's doing something, he's taking a retreat, and there's a purpose for the retreat. In fact, the word Ephraim, because this is about a week before he gets crucified. We're going to get her going to Passover, chapter 12. It's a week, the last week. Ephraim is, is the same word for Bethlehem. It's the same city. Okay, so it's Bethlehem. And this is the city where Jesus was born, right? It's 15 miles north of Jerusalem. Another word for Ephraim is Ephrathah. That could be another term that we use for the same meaning for Ephraim or Bethlehem. In fact, Ephraim means fruitful. Bethlehem means house of peace. The bread of life retreated to the house of peace where he's going to be fruitful when he abides with his father to get ready to go to the cross. When you feel pressure, when you feel attacked, when you feel heaviness, you feel threatened. You feel accused. I just first want you to retreat to the house of peace. 
to your Jerusalem where Jesus dwells. That's where we go first. And it says that Jesus no longer walked among the Jews. It appeared that religious leaders kind of put too much pressure on, that they tried to stifle the light of Israel under a bushel. These men watched, these men wanted to snuff the light out. They wanted to blow the light out like a candle, but the story is not over. It may seem like the light's out, but God is not done yet. And as we close, we see that that Waltz will lose are seeking to pray, not P-R-A for him, but to P-R-E on him. And the pastor of the Jews was near, and many went from the country of Jerusalem before the pastor purified themselves. And they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves, and they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. It's setting up the time the Passover is near. You see that, verse 55. Here's an interesting fact. It is in Bethlehem that shepherds used to breed sheep and lambs. They breed them for the sake of sending them over to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. You see the correlation? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He'll let her go to Jerusalem to die as the Passover lamb. We see that being played out here, right? The people are coming early. They're coming early for the purification. If you go to Israel, right? I know the Bex, you're going here in a couple of weeks to Israel. And when you go outside the temples, you're going to find like these steps going down, almost like into a hole, like a hole. That was the purification where they used to have water. And before you can go to sacrifice, they, people used to go in and do these ceremonial cleanings. But Passover was a big holiday, right? Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, is our Christmas. Passover is our Easter time. That's where we celebrate the resurrection, right? So they knew that Passover of the Jewish culture was a big thing. So they got there early to, to go be purified in order to partake in, in that ceremony, in that celebration, in that holiday. And so people are arriving in Jerusalem. In fact, Josephus, a historian, said this. He said that there, was, there, were, uh, that there were over 250 lambs that were sacrificed during the Passover, 250,000. One lamb represented one household, which consists usually of 10 people. There could have been up to 2.5 million people present in Jerusalem. It was standing room only there because that city is not very big. 2.5 million people could have been present. And in there, we find that Jesus is on the most wanted list. They're looking for him, right? They they weren't even sure if Jesus was going to show up. Because if he showed up, this would be a suicide mission for him. Because they wanted to kill him. And we know that this council, the Sanhedrin, gave a command, right? If, If anyone knew the whereabouts of Jesus, report it immediately, right? They're treating him like a thief. They put a warrant out for his arrest because they wanted to seize him. For what purpose? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to lay their hands on him. Well, chapter 12 still has to happen. (laughs) He's going to enter in Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and people are going to worship him. And he's going to begin his greatest plan of redemption. Yeah, they're going to put his hands on him. But this time, he's not going to escape. He's going to lay himself down. Nobody could take him up. He He chose to lay himself down for us. He gave himself up. He turned himself in for a higher purpose for us. For when we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love while we are at sinners. He died for us. He lays down his life 
because that was a part of his plan. So I remind you of this. As we look at our response to this messianic prophet, Jesus will impact you in two ways. Either you put your faith in him or you worry about your situation. Where are you today? Faith? Do you receive him? Do you reject him? Are you curious? He's calling you to commitment. That's what he's doing here. Some believed and some snitched on him. Here's the second thing. Jesus sacrificed himself for the whole world. That was the prophetic word of Caiaphas. He was going to die for the nations. He was going to die. This prophet was coming to die for the whole world. To redeem us. Because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. The Bible says in John 3, 17, after 16, you know 16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his own begotten son. It was 17, says he came not to condemn the world, but to save it. He didn't come to bring the, you know, the bat. He didn't come to come after you. He didn't come to do any of that. He came to rescue you. Rescue me from my own mess and my poor decisions and my own things and my own stuff. That's the love of God. And we have to understand that the works will always face opposition. The work of Jesus will always face opposition. There will be opposition until we're in the new kingdom. There will be that. There will be people that laugh at you. There will be people that ridicule. There will be people call you religious. There will be call you all these things, right? My family makes fun of me all the time. My brother doesn't know Jesus. I talk to him. He calls me, oh, you're just acting like Jimmy Swaggart. You're just trying to take the money from the people. All right. All right, brother. I, I said some things to him, and I did it lovingly. But it's all good, man. This is, the same, this is the same. This is my brother who, when I got saved, said, told my, my parents, oh, don't worry about Pete. Give him two weeks. He can go back using, drinking, and doing his mess again in two weeks. It's been over 40 years since I've been walking with Jesus. Listen, just testifying of the resurrected Jesus. You have the same testimony. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your love and blessings. Thank you for your goodness and mercy and grace, Lord. I thank you for the people in this room, the work you're doing in them. Ah, Father, you're good. We looked at the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11 for the last couple of weeks. And I look around the room and look at all the lives that have been resurrected by your spirit. That you've given them new life. And that life is found in you. And so we humbly come before you and we thank you for the work you're doing. And so I pray for your church this morning that they would walk that new life. They would understand their identity in you. They would understand who you are. And so I just want to worship you this morning with that. But there is a time where they're going to have to choose. And that's the thing about our world is we get to choose. Love is a choice. And we get to choose whether we follow them or not. And God, regardless of our choice, God still loves us. We thank you, praise you, and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.